Always honest, often blunt, and never afraid, this is the narrative. We're breaking away from the script to reveal the driving forces behind the most important and divisive issues facing our culture today. My name is Aaron Bear, and I am the president of Center for Christian Virtue, CCV, here with my co-host of the Narrative Podcast, David Mahan, our policy director. David, how you doing, man? Doing well. Excited to get started with these things. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, wanting to get this podcast up and going. And really, uh, again, even as we were just praying a little bit ago before the podcast, you know, wanting to do something where we're not just adding to the noise, uh, not doing something where we're, we're, we're not just trying to even just build up CCV, build up David and Aaron, but, but do something meaningful, you know? That's right. And, and so when we've been thinking about this and, and thinking about where, where can we start and actually contribute something to the conversation, especially contribute something to Christians who are looking around the crazy world right now and figure things out, uh, the, the topic that came to mind first and foremost was, was race uh, and, and, and helping, helping people, helping Christians think through this issue maybe a little differently. And I know, David, that's something obviously near and dear to your heart. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, it's really, I think it's near and dear to everybody's heart. You know, we, we don't want to be at each other's throats all the time. We don't like our, our dirty past that sometimes gets ignored and sometimes it gets over uh, blown out of proportion. I just think we're looking for a narrative that, that fits most Americans when it comes to race and dealing with uh, issues of our past and the future. No, that's right. So, so for, for those of you, this is your, you know, obviously you, you might've caught the, the intro episode, but you know, really what we're going to be doing here uh, for the narrative is, is we're going to do these volumes. And we're going to do seven-episode volumes, and every time uh, we're going to be uh, taking one issue and dissecting it from, from multiple perspectives and, and really trying to get a, a really robust understanding of, of the issue. So we're breaking away from the normal narrative you hear about it. You know, again, we, we just hear the, the same narratives on all topics again and again on, on, on race and, and whatever the issue, whether it's abortion or religious freedom or family or marriage. There's always the narrative that goes around it, but what's the truth? And that's what we're going to be doing here is really diving into the truth. And, and I'm really excited for the first guest we have. It's the, the best way of kicking this off is with Bob Woodson from the Woodson Institute. And we'll be telling you more about him. Uh, but with every episode of the narrative, we're going to kick off uh, really looking at just what are three big stories happening today uh, before we get into our interview. And so you're really, actually, uh, today, it's funny, we... David and I were catching up this morning about big stories, and then all of a sudden, a, a huge story broke uh, just a little bit ago, uh, which was the the Supreme Court issued the Fulton versus Pennsylvania case. Uh, and, and you know, for a lot of folks, you know, tracking the Supreme Court isn't something you do uh, on your on your day to day basis. Uh, I, I've I've spent way too many uh, mornings uh, looking at scotusblog.com, seeing decisions come out, trying to see what's going on. And this was one we've been watching for a while. And, and for those of you who, who weren't tracking with it, which is probably most people who don't actually have lives, uh, <laughs> uh, this was the case where the city of Philadelphia was trying, was actually shut down Catholic uh, social services, Catholic charities in Philly uh, because they did not want to place children uh, in same-sex households. Uh, so they said, instead of you being able to help anybody, we'd rather shut you down. Uh, because you don't, you know, go along with our our, our LGBT uh, position, our LGBT point of view, uh, and and actually, in a, it was a really surprising decision today for for those of us that that geek out on these things and watch it is because the decision came out nine zero uh, that nine justices sided on the side of Catholic charities, and so we were, you know, we were thrilled about that. You know, the idea that you got Kagan and Sotomayor, these liberal justices, going along with it, that's a that's a big deal. It's nine zero. Uh, but when you really read the decision, it's not quite as sweeping. It wasn't quite as, you know, we didn't get the huge victory we were, we were hoping. 
for and, and really what ended up happening just for, for those folks. And there's been a lot of really good stuff written on this. I'll, I'll let you go, go get that. You go read that on your own. But basically the court said, you know, because of some uh, language in the contracts that, that the city of Philadelphia has written uh, that would allow for exemptions uh, in, uh, you know, their anti-discrimination language, uh, the language isn't generally applied to everybody. And so, you know, uh, the, the, the language, you know, the, the city cannot deny Catholic social services their exemption because of their religious beliefs. So it, it, what, what we were really hoping from the court, I'll say for a lot of us who are watching this, was, was we were really anticipating the, the, the Supreme Court to come out and say, you, it is unlawful for the government to force a religious organization uh, to do something that violates their sincerely held religious beliefs. That was the that was the uh, the decision we were hoping for. We didn't get that sweeping victory. We still got a victory all the same, and there's going to be some good stuff that's going to come out of this long term that I think is going to be really good for us. But the thing I really wanted to narrow in on, David, and I want to talk to you about this, the, the idea that the city of Philadelphia and so much, so many government bureaucrats and folks on the left today would look at a Christian organization and say, yeah, you're helping people that need help. Yeah, you're helping kids. But because you don't want to help them the way we want you to help them, you don't have the right to exist. That's the thing that, 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 that just, just jumps off on me. And like, this is the, the day and age we live in. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I've been in, I've been in boardrooms with, with uh, city mayors and city councilmen and, and things like that, where, you know, they're saying when a crisis hits this city, we all know that we're going to have to call on you, the pastors, uh, to take the brunt of this. They know that when people are hungry, nobody has an army of help like a church does. Um, the churches at the same time are saying, yeah, we appreciate that you see that fact, um, but you at, you at the same time cannot tell us how we are to help. Um, and uh, if you had all the answers, you wouldn't need the body of Christ. You wouldn't need the church. So let us be the church and you be you, um, you know, but they are very, very concerned. As you know, Aaron, um, even the, the 3,000 plus churches we have in our network, very concerned about um, what they can and cannot do. If I take, if I get a 501c3 status, what am I not going to be able to do uh, with all of this precedent being set? No, that, that, that's right. And again, this is the thing that we talk about all the time, which is, you know, what, what, what we advocate, what gets me out of bed every morning is how do we just keep the church free to be the church? You know right. what I mean? When, I, when, I, when you talk to people that are working in ministries, they're looking at this case, they're looking at what the city of Philly has done to Catholic Charities and, and said, guys, we, we're not politicians. We don't care about, we, we don't care who, about, you know, the, 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 what, what our, our, the clientele we're serving, how they identify, what their sexual orientation is, their cost. We just want to help people. Right. And, and, and that's the thing that, that, that gets me is that you have in this case the city of Philadelphia and the ACLU and, you know, all, all these groups saying, look, because you don't think like we think, you don't have the operate, you, you don't have the freedom to exist, and we want to shut you down. Again, this decision didn't ultimately get to, to the, the, the big win we wanted. Right. I think it put us in good position. I think you saw some signs from the justices uh, that they're leaning that way. Justice Samuel Alito wrote a 77-page concurring opinion that should have been the majority opinion that would have given us the victory we wanted. We didn't get that. Uh, but we got we got going more down that right direction, and and I'm hoping to to see us get uh, all the way there. Um, next story I wanted to, to dive in, uh, David. It's something we're we're working on here in Ohio right now, but it's something that's really sweeping the nation. 
um, is, is what's going on with women's sports. Uh, and, uh, and the Biden administration, flashback to about 2015, uh, when it was the Obama administration, they issued this, uh, this letter from the Justice Department saying that uh, you know, in, in education, uh, you had to include the concepts of gender identity and sexual orientation in the word sex, meaning that if a boy says he's a girl, he's allowed to use women's restrooms. If a boy says he's a girl, he's allowed to play in girls' sports. Um, and and you know, then Trump administration administration came in, reversed that. Biden came in and, and reversed that. Reverse reminds that. me of yeah. right. It reminds me of that that episode uh, of the uh, of the Office. Uh, where, where it's the, the dinner party where, where Michael Scott's talking about the vasectomy. He had a vasectomy done, it was undone and done again. It's snip, snap, snip, snap. That's okay. kind of like what's happening with, <laughs> with going from, from the, the two administrations. But, but really, when people bring up the... Uh, with you. I, I know, sorry. It's, we're, gonna, we're not going to make it past three episodes. Uh, but really, what, what, when I'm thinking about what the, the Biden administration, a lot of folks are looking at this and they say, what's the big deal about this? And especially in the women's sports context, I mean, it seems obvious, but I mean, Dave, you're working on this right now in Ohio. Yeah, there's a reason why we have women's sports in the very beginning. There's a reason why they had to fight for Title IX in the very beginning. And that there is a difference. If we're talking about creating a, a fair playing field, uh, we have to understand just biology, uh, that males and females are different. Uh, once a human being goes past puberty, there are just sustainable differences between male and female anatomy, uh, bone structure, heart um, capacity. I mean, there's just so many different hormones and things that, that play in that make males more dominant than females in certain sports. Um, I don't understand why that's a problem now. You think that this would be a slam dunk, uh, but it's not because we are now redefining what is male and what is female. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's the thing that, that gets me a lot about when we're talking about this issue in particular is a lot of times uh, when folks think about these sexual orientation, gender identity laws, they'll think of them in a religious freedom context. And it's true. They, they do, as, as we see in, in the, the Fulton case and the Philadelphia case, it, there's a real religious freedom issue here where, you know, religious ministries aren't, shouldn't be forced to do something that violates their conscience. But in this context, it's so much bigger than even religious freedom. It's 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 reality. Right. You know, like we're, we're we're debating what is real, what is what, and, and the idea that somebody is able to just say because I feel I, I identify this way, I feel this way. Which you know, Ryan T. Anderson has some great stuff of like, how does a man know what it means to feel like a woman? He's never been a woman, so how would he knows what it would it mean to feel like? Right. You know what I mean? But but the the idea of that that somebody is now by law able to redefine reality. You know, you and I are sitting at our conference table right now at the CCB office. And now all of a sudden I'm going to say, this is a pool. Does that, if I say that this table is a pool, does that make it a pool? Right. No. Um, but, but if somebody, you know, all of a sudden says that I'm the opposite sex, we have to, by law, I, you know, acknowledge them that way. That, that, the, the implications of that are so much bigger, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I, and I think we're going to eventually do a deep dive into the whole um, gender fluidity, trans issue, yeah. you know, because I think where a lot of our pastors get hit, you know, where we have some folks that are struggling with gender dysphoria and things like that in our congregations. We do have mothers that are struggling with children who are struggling in these areas. But it's the narrative um, of mainstream media that in pop culture that affirmation equals love and healing and disagreement equals hate and harm. 
And, you know, you have two issues here. You have, you know, sports, you know, creating a, a fair place. And the bottom line is, look, if, if you can't have transgender women run against women, it's like, well, where are they going to run? You've got two other options. You can have a co-ed option or you can run against biological, you know, male. Uh, you have you, you have options. It's not like you can't be a part of sports. Yeah. Um, but I think the other piece is not wanting to hurt somebody's feeling that if you do not affirm them, then they're going to commit suicide and all these other things. And that's why we need to do a much deeper dive into this. We will. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that, that we've been talking about future volumes to do. And I think that that's definitely one we're, we're talking about. Um, well, last one here. And, and this is one that's that's, you know, I, I actually had a, a quote in, in the paper just the other day about this, about an issue that I've never seen rage uh, like this before, where we've seen so many people uh, get so involved and, and, and respond uh, uh, so quickly to is the issue of critical race theory in the public schools. Uh, and, and there's been a, a move that CCB is we, we've we've been working on this in Ohio uh, to uh, prohibit critical race theory in the classroom. Um, and, uh, and, you know, again, the, 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 baseline of critical race theory is, is the, the based out of the ideas of, of critical theory, the Marxist ideas of critical theories that sort of looks through the world through the, the, the lens of the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, and if you are a part of the oppressed, you'll always be oppressed. If you are part of the oppressors, you'll always be oppressors. Uh, and really that's what critical race theory is teaching is that the entire lens of human history, but especially American history should be seen through the, 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 the eyes of race. And that that is the predominant force uh, that has created uh, uh, the, the, any inequalities we have, any troubles in our nation. It's all because of race. Uh, and, and Dave, obviously, Bob Woodson is going to speak into this a little bit. Absolutely. Um, but, but it's particularly with schools. I, I, and you spent 20 plus years in, in public schools. We always hear, oh, is this actually happening in the school? And when you were there, when you have been there, is this type of curriculum happening in the school? It, it, it absolutely is. And, and again, the, the issue is not so much curriculum. You know, everybody's looking for the 1619 project curriculum. It, it's the academic, uh, you know, materials, uh, the instructional materials that um, we bring into the classroom from YouTube videos to speakers to little um, projects that the teachers give students, the way they word the questions and um how they, how they kind of direct the students to answer those questions in order to get a good grade. These are the things that I've been seeing and hearing in the classroom, as well as just listening to young people talking about the assignments that they've been getting. And I think it's just lowering the bar. You know, if you just even remove race, you know, because critical race theory says um, basically that all the inequities we may see in opportunity or, or outcome, all of the outcome inequities we may see, is directly related to some systemic thing that keeps you down. And one thing Bob Woodson always says about it is, listen, you know, what is it to say that, you know, to a young black or brown person that you, what determines your success or failure is what white people or anybody else will or will not do for you? That is what critical race theory says. Even if we win this thing, which what does winning look like, right? If it's oppressors against the oppressed, if it's victims against the victimizers, at what point does anybody win with that worldview? It's a very defeatist attitude that we're sowing into the minds of young people. No, and, and that's the, yeah, again, I think that's one of the, you kind of nailed it right there, David, the, uh, at the beginning of your part about, you know, everyone's looking for the 1619 project as it being taught there. The thing about critical race theory is that 
it, it's a it's a perception. It's, it's a, a mindset. Lens. It's a mindset that you force everything through. And so you like no no teacher. I, I will grant that very few teachers are going to stand up and say, "Kids, I'm going to stand up now and I'm going to teach you critical race theory and I'm going to tell you about how to do it." Just like they're standing, I'm going to teach you. You know, I, I'm going to teach you addition today. No, the, 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 the way critical race theory has come into the classroom is that every aspect of education is now pushed through this lens. Yeah. And, and the message is communicated to children that you're either an oppressor, you're a victim, or you're a victimizer, yeah. as you say. Including math. Including, yeah. Literally, yeah. <laughs> History, it's, math, everything. Yeah, and, and so that, I'll even say the legislation we've worked on at, at CCV has focused on that. You know, again, and some folks will sit back and say, well, we don't want to ban... Uh, concepts in the school and 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 the the the, the thing that we're banning uh, with this is is pushing this on kids as this is the way to understand the world. Right. Uh, if it's a you know you're teaching different worldviews and you're going through and talking about it, and nobody cares about that. That's not what we're getting at. But the way that it's happening in the schools today is say this is how you understand the world around you. Uh, it, it's honestly it's an, it's indoctrination. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to be interviewing. We're, we're so excited to, to have our conversation with Bob Woodson. We're going to get into all of this and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back on the narrative. Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our public policy advocacy, grassroots activism, church ambassador network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click join the network. Stories are a way we relate to one another. It's hard to underestimate their importance. Wessler Media is here to help you preserve those stories that you hold dear. We'll produce a personal podcast, an audio scrapbook that will preserve those memories for generations to come. Get in touch today. Call toll-free or text 1-833-38-STORY, 1-833-38-STORY, or visit wesslermedia.com. That's W-E-S-S-L-E-R-media.com. Welcome back to The Narrative. Uh, we're here with Mr. Bob Woodson to talk about race and roots. Bob Woodson is the founder and president of the Woodson Center, which helps residents of low-income neighborhoods address the problems of their communities. In response to an epidemic of youth violence that has afflicted urban, rural, and suburban neighborhoods alike, Woodson has focused much of the Woodson Center's activities on an initiative to establish violence-free zones in troubled schools and neighborhoods throughout the nation. He has headed the National Urban League Department of Criminal Justice and has been a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Foundation for Public Policy Research. You know, I, I love that bio, Mr. Woodson, uh, but I know you to be much more than that. You've got an <laughs> army of 2,500 grassroots activists all over the country. You've advised several U.S. presidents. Uh, how would what would you like to say to the people about what you're doing right now? Well, I think it's uh, it's at a very critical time in this nation's history where I think for the first time. Uh, the fundamental values and propositions that have defined who we are are really under attack. Um, and it's unfortunate that the people who are trying to undermine this nation are using the moral authority of the civil rights movement and also exploiting America's 
birth defect of slavery uh, to use it as a bludgeon against the founding principles of this nation mm. and, and also promoting tribalism and separation and despair, um, promoting moral anarchy uh, among low-income Blacks. Um, and, and so it is important, though, that all of us who are concerned about this nation come together not to engage in debate, but to roll up our sleeves and, and promote remedies that push back against those who would undermine this nation. And we're not going to do it through rhetoric or issuing white papers or whining about what the other side is doing. That's right. The, 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 the challenge is to persuade people by demonstrating that the, the values and principles and virtues of our founders have the consequence of improving the quality of our life. And, and so that's the battlefield in which I'm waging a pushback against this assault on the nation. I wanna demonstrate that the values of our founders, of self-determination, of hard work, of, of discipline, self-discipline, are, have the consequence of improving the quality of our, our, our personal lives, our families' lives, and of the lives of everybody in this nation. That's right. That's right. Now, Mr. Woods, I know you were actively involved in the civil rights movement, um, the original civil rights movement. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And is that is, is the movement that we're seeing right now, uh, you know, the same as what you were involved uh, in, in back then? No. The, Back when I was active, a young civil rights activist in Baird Rustin's hometown of Westchester, Pennsylvania, there was vigorous debate within the movement as to the course forward. A lot mm -hmm. of the organizations like SNCC Corps, SCLC, all of these organizations caused, were caused by splinters within the movement as to what are the course forward. The Black Panther Party, the Nation of Islam, the, the Republic of New Africa, everybody and uh, the young students, for instance, who challenged King at Greensboro, uh, they, they, uh, they, they wanted to engage in civil disobedience and Thurgood Marshall and the lawyers in Atlanta was against it. They were against Rosa Parks. Uh, uh, and so there's always creative tension within the movement as to the course forward. But what we were all unified in believing that our destiny was determined by what we did. And, and, and debate and discussion was not only tolerated, but welcomed. Mm -hmm. and, and of course the king thrust of, we should be judged by the content of our character. We should not pursue violent resistance, but he, he prevailed. And so I, I was very happy that, that uh, we, we did, but that, but that spirit of debate and discussion is gone now. Mm -hmm. The civil rights movement that I knew uh, has forfeited its moral authority once those uh, leaders became political uh, uh, office holders and after 50 years of dispensing $22 trillion in poverty monies wow. that have where 70 cents of all those dollars went to those that provide service to the poor. Uh, we created a commodity out of poor people and unfortunately the civil rights movement has descended into a race grievance industry 
uh, that profits off of the misery of, of its low-income Black counterparts. So, Mr. Woodson, I, I, I'm grateful for you being here with us and, and, and for <laughs> all your incredible work. I mean, this is... This Strong is, memo will follow. Yeah, I, my, my goodness. <laughs> I, I just... Uh, I, I, a couple months ago, I read a book uh, called Hellhound on His Trail. It was about the assassination of, of Dr. King. And uh, one of the things that really jumped out to me, and again, it, it, especially the context of reading it now, right after the, you know, the, the, all the, the, the riots that happened last summer. Um, but one of the things that really jumped out to me was Dr. King's what seemed like a, a radical message to a lot of folks around nonviolence. And you just, you just talked about that. Can you, you know, give some historical context to, you know, what, what, why that was so important to, to Dr. King's message of nonviolence uh, and, and what, how that helped make the civil rights movement one of the most successful, if not the most successful political movement in American history? But Dr. King said that the only way that a minority can prevail in the majority of country is to hold that majority to its moral uh, a commitment to the principle, to hold it true to its own principles, that we could not wage and successfully win a violent war as a 10% of the population. So one was practical, the other was moral. Dr. King said, the way you destroy an enemy is to make them your friend. That he practiced what I call radical grace, the very fact that when his home was bombed and his wife and small child barely survived, and he was surrounded by 200 armed blacks, angry, ready to tear that country apart. The fact that in the midst of this personal challenge, Dr. King could even argue there and say, no, nonviolence is the way we're going to respond. So Dr. King wasn't just his rhetoric. Here's a man whose wife and small baby almost died, and yet he was still faithful to his Christian principles that we should respond by calling America to its better angels. And, and, and so Dr. King summoned all of us to be the best of what we could become. And, and that's why the nation uh, was a, that the civil rights movement was a, a revolution of inclusion not a revolution of exclusion. You were kind of talking a little bit about uh, before that, about all of the, you know, I think today, and maybe we take some of this for granted of the influence of, of Dr. King on, on, you know, how taken aback when we see someone get violent in a political setting, the, the, the concept of nonviolence maybe back then wasn't, you know, there were so many assassinations back then and, and, and all that. The concept of nonviolence wasn't something to be taken for granted. Is that right? It, what what no, was the, it, the, the debate going on back then? The debate back then between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, the Black Panther Party, Dr. King said that, uh, that he is against violence of the Klan, but he's also against retaliatory violence of the, of the Black Panther Party. Uh, and so that was an intense struggle. And, um, uh, but again, Dr. King prevailed when he began to win over uh, converts to his way. And that's why his, his uh, uh, approach won out because it accomplished it. We got the Voting Rights Act uh, after Selma uh, and people, America's 
ugly side was revealed on television for the first time. And, and thousands and millions of people got recruited uh, to and, and began to change. Uh, that's why it was um, it, it was hailed as a great victory. Yeah, I and we've talked about this in the past, uh, Mr. Woodson, about how, you know, in my opinion, you know, young men would always come up to me and say, you know, David, are you a Malcolm brother? Or are you a Martin brother? Insinuating that, you know, they're looking for more of a hands on by any means necessary approach even if that approach means violence, you know, and they, they equate that to uh, Malcolm X versus, you know, kind of a milk toast uh, turnover kumbaya approach from Dr. Martin Luther King. And, and what I share to them is I, I'm, a, I'm a Martin brother and so was Malcolm. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And, and that if we're gonna really look to whose movement was most violent, it would be Martin's. Not that he, um, he, he was violent in his own way, in his own actions, but he got folks in churches from eight to 80 years old to stand out in front of water hoses, to stand out and be attacked by dogs, to be beat down by billy clubs under the lens of a national camera so that everybody in America who assumed they knew the issues going on in, the, you know, in our inner cities and with black folks, uh, they would actually see the violence that was being subjected upon their communities and so while they did not forcefully active, you know, actively, you know, be violent to folks, they exposed the violence of others. And uh, in my opinion, it was a very violent movement. But could you explain a little bit of the dynamics that was going on between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King towards the end of both of their lives? Yes, again, uh, Malcolm was evolving. Uh, and, 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 and Malcolm changed when he went to Mecca and he saw people who were Muslims from all races coming together, he became more of a, of a universalist. In fact, I was ready to get on a train and go to New York and follow Malcolm once he made that change from radical uh, Muslim and began to talk about peace and began to embrace many of the same principles that King talked about. And, and so, but people don't know that Malcolm was evolving and he had evolved to the point where he understood now what King was all about. That's why King had this influence. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, the history of violent, uh, uh, violence is very clear. Violence begets violence. And, 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 and but, but again, the very fact that not only did it trigger change and improvement in America, but it also helped to end colonial rule throughout the world, throughout Africa, throughout Asia. People began to follow uh, uh, the, 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 and, and uh, you know, people began to, to follow the, the dictates of King. So, so let's then move from what the civil rights movement was uh, back then to what is being called the civil rights movement and, and, and where it is today. Um, with Black Lives Matter, BLM, uh, and, and, you know, all the, the racial discussion uh, that we're having in, in America today. What's your perception of today's civil rights movement uh, compared to the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s? You know, I think radical whites on the left are fighting radical whites on the right, and they're using race as a proxy for this battle. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that one too. That that's a good one. Uh, but, but, particularly, but, but, yeah. particularly radical the leftists, they have been waiting to to they were like a parasite with Black Lives Matter was just a perfect vehicle because they couldn't attach themselves to the civil rights movement because of their godless uh, emphasis um, and atheism and anti-family uh, orientation. But so Black Lives Matter was just perfect for them. Mm -hmm. And so they attached themselves when George Floyd was killed, then that enabled them to, to act, that was the catalyst. And they said they were doing this, uh, this protest that turned violent in the name of social justice for blacks. And that's when they hijacked the, the legacy of the civil rights movement. But you, you have to understand, they quickly migrated from justice for blacks in, 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 uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota and went to Portland, Oregon, where they began to reveal their true uh, principles when they said they were the, that the Christian cross is, is uh, a symbol of white supremacy when they burned the American flag and they desecrated the cross and, when, and, and, and burned Bibles. But when they also said that the nuclear family is Eurocentric and therefore racist, uh, that's when they revealed their true self. The nuclear family, self-determination and Christian virtues is precisely the foundation upon which black America survived slavery and survived Jim Crow during the 30 to 10 years of the depression, when racism was enshrined in law, when we had no political representation, when the unemployment rate in the, in the white community was 25%, during the depression was 40% in the black community, yet we had the highest marriage rate of any other group in the country during the depression under Jim Crow. And elderly people could walk safely in our community without fear of being assaulted by their children. So, and that's because those values, those principles, those virtues of family self-determination and our Christian virtues served as an insulator from the most violent environment we were in. And yet now you've got Black Lives Matter and the so-called radical left attacking those and the civil rights leadership is silent conspirators. They are not objecting to the denigration of the cross, burning Bibles or burning the flag. They are silent. To me, they're worse than bigots. They're traitors mm. by being silent and not stepping up and saying, we defend. The very fact that Frederick Douglass, the statue in Rochester was desecrated and torn down. So you, we've, we've spoken and, and you, you were debating uh, a BLM, I'm not going to mention his name, but somebody- I will, they, Hawk Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Hawk Newsom, for sure. You were debating him. It was one of, uh, probably one of the best debates I've ever watched around this, this topic. And what he was doing was trying to paint a picture from slavery, a continuum from slavery till today. Uh, that all of the issues that we are seeing in our neighborhoods today, whether it be uh, the breakdown of the family, which they probably wouldn't even see as a problem, uh, uh, low academic performance, uh, rise in violent crime, all of that is because of systemic racism, because of this continu downward continuum from slavery. It's because of that that we are this. 
And you dismantled that in a way that I've never seen a man dismantle that before uh, or a woman for that matter. Could, could you kind of break that down, why that is a false narrative? Well, what we did at the Woodson Center is that we summoned about 24 scholars and activists from both left and right to, to let's reveal what the facts are. In other words, if truth-based facts do not prevail, then lies become normal. And so what we did was we went back and, and, and in our essays, in our book, that we, we gave what the truth was. When white people were at their worst, we were at our best. 20 blacks were born slaves who died millionaires. Our studies uh, that right after slavery, one of our scholars looked at the, 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 the records of six major plantations as to what is the composition of the slave family. 75% of those family members had a man and a woman raising children. That we maintained that when, when, when uh, blacks discriminated against us and redlined us in, in the city of Chicago in 1929, there was in, in the Brownsville section of Chicago, that was their Wall, Black Wall Street, there were 731 Black-owned businesses, 100 million in real estate assets. In 1929, the outer wedlock birth was something like 12%. When uh, in 1930, uh, between 1920 and 1940, in the South, the education gap was three years. It was eighth, eighth, year, eighth grade for whites, five, fifth grade for uh, Blacks. Julius Rosenwald, the white CEO of Sears, partnered with Booker T. Washington, and he put up $4 million. The black community matched it with $4.6 million. And together, they built 5,000 Rosenwald Booker T. schools. And, that, and as a consequence of these, of these schools, within 20 years, the education gap closed from, from within six months. And the question is, if we could close the education gap in the South during segregation, when we were using used textbooks and we had half the budgets of the white schools, yet we still close the education gap, why can't we close the education gap today in Black-run cities when those educational systems were being run by their own people? Right. That's right. And we're spending a lot more than 8.4, 8.6 million dollars. I mean, per school. I mean, we're spending way more than ever before in education. That's right. Exactly. And and so so in other words, that that nothing is more lethal than providing people a good excuse for failure. That's right. And that's what we're doing by by looking at this this challenge that we face strictly through the lens of race. That all whites are villains. Uh, to be shamed, blamed, and punished, and all Blacks are victims to be compensated, pitied, and patronized. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Where do you yeah. go? That's right. And, and, you know, I would say, and I know our, our time is short, and, and here on the narrative, we don't want to just give, you know, the, the common narrative that we're hearing. You know, you've got the left that says, you know, blacks are victims. You know, that's what we're hearing from BLM. That's what we're hearing from different folks uh, on the right. You know, well, no, you're not victims. You're victimizers. You know, you kill you kill such amount. You know, last weekend in Chicago. You know, so you're 
you're not victims, you're victimizers. I want to hear more about your solution of radical grace. You know, in other words, what we got to do, if, if you see them, just see the movie uh, Hidden Figures. In that movie, Kathleen Johnson, the mathematician, said they were trying to figure out how to, the missile can move from uh, elliptical orbit to a parabolic yeah. orbit. And she yeah. said, well, maybe we're looking in the wrong place. She went to the back of the room and got a 3,000-year-old Euclidean geometry. And she said, sometimes we got to look back and take remedies that worked back then, apply it to current situations. Mm -hmm. We need to go back and say that blacks were able to close the education gap and, and do and, and create railroads and create schools. If we could do this in the face of oppression, what are the lessons that we can draw from our past successes that we can apply to the present? So what the Woodson Center does, we look for solutions. We, if, if you say that 70% of black families in these cities are raising children that are dysfunctional, it means 30% are not. But we go into the 30% of the households to find out how people are able to achieve under adverse circumstances. And then you'll find the source of, of old values being applied to a new challenge. That's right. And we build on success. We've gone into communities that were uh, problem-ridden with gangs and by mobilizing those, uh, the, the uh, entrepreneurial spirit within those communities, we have been able to be dramatically improve the community uh, from within. I can take you to areas where uh, Buster Soros in Somerset, New Jersey, for 20 years, his church served as a, a catalyst for the revitalization of his entire neighborhood. And it's done so without gentrification, revitalization. Mm -hmm. Public housing looks like a peaceful place. In other words, we need to look for islands of excellence present day, build on those islands of excellence and seek to expand them rather than always look for the answers on the outside, improve by, by making people agents of their own uplift. Amen. One of the radical things I'm proposing, we need black people need to stop talking about white people for one year. <laughs> so so i want to i want to actually flip that then uh black people need to start stop talking about white people and 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 look at it white people talking about black people yeah because he's talking about me all the time I don't, <laughs> just just you know and, and then look for look for the solutions from within yeah. now but i i want to ask you mr woodson about you know one of the things in this, in the, the racial reconciliation conversation, you hear, you're hearing this a lot, especially in white evangelical churches. This is something that, that you know, and, and I, I've, we've even said, I remember our, our, our old church relations director, Ruth Edmonds, and I, when, when she first started, she's an African-American woman. When she first started, we, we got a few invitations to do racial reconciliation conversations, and we would do them. And it got to the point where Ruth and I looked at each other, and we just said, we're, we're not doing these anymore, because it, it feels like all we're doing is is coming around and and talking about problems and but not talking about remedies as, as you've said but but i but there's a there's some of these churches i know uh i i, I have pastors coming to mind right now that are white evangelical pastors that are are hearing and are, are getting the narrative pushed on them that systematic racism is the biggest issue we're dealing with today and 
and they want to be a part of it. They, ha they have broken hearts. They, they, they want to have grace. They want to have mercy. They want to have open hearts to, to hearing these things. So they get sucked up and they think to start pushing everything through the lens of race. What would you tell these pastors, the, these, these white evangelical pastors that are, are they, I think their hearts are in the right place. They want to do the right thing. Um, but they've jumped onto a narrative that says, you know, the, the, the BLM movement is the movement that is the defining issue of our day. Well, first of all, you can tell them that Bob Woodson is a self-certified racial exorcist. <laughs> and if they really need to, 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 to be exercised from race, come to me, pay me $25 a person. I'm going to get in on the race. better than the Catholic too. Church. Oh, That's yeah. yeah. You know, I'm going to pay. But no, they, they need to understand that for them to presume that that they have some control over the lives of black people is itself white supremacy. <laughs> they don't even, it's, it's, they don't, they need to just understand. They should just praise the Lord. And, and in my book, The Triumph of Joseph, that we need to, that Joseph's, we need to read the Bible and, and be guided by there. Joseph, uh, that, that I talk about in my book, was betrayed by his brothers and enslaved by the Egyptians. But he still took steps to save both of them because he practiced radical grace. That's what we should be pursuing. We should be pursuing grace. If white people learn how to love other white people, there won't be no black problem. And so we need to really uh, stop this preoccupation with race and come together and recognize and see when I look for somebody, I, I want to know, are you my kind, not whether you're my color. Mm. Mm. When you look at the struggles that Joseph had with his brothers, when they first presented themselves to him, he was mad and he wept in private, but he put them to a series of tests. He put the cup in their, in their grain. And, and then finally the last test, when they took Benjamin, the youngest brother, and, and, and said, I'm going to keep him. You all can go back. And Judah, the, the principal conspirator that sold Joseph into slavery, came to Joseph and said, it would break my father's heart. Take me instead of Benjamin. He knew that he had become contrite, that he was now, now Joseph said, you are my brothers in spirit, which is more important than being a brother in blood. So we should look to partner with or seek ways to become reconciled with one another, having nothing to do with race. The byproduct may be racial reconciliation, but that's not at the point where we should start. You got enough, you got enough problems within your own families to be worrying about <laughs> being reconciled with black folks. And then now, you're, now you're getting too personal, sir. But uh, See, anyway, the, but uh, <laughs> the lead, let me just say that the leading cause of death in Silicon Valley among prepared households with median incomes one hundred eighty thousand dollars is suicide. Mm. That is a challenge, and, and among low-income whites, it's prescription drugs. We have a lot of challenges, moral and spiritual challenges, that we need to be to be consulting with one another on, commiserating with one another on. Race is not one of them. Yeah. Suicide, homicide, drug no. overdosing. No, I, I'll say, I mean, that was, 
I remember having many conversations about that very thing, especially during the, the midst of the pandemic, uh, right after George Floyd was killed. You know, I, there, 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 was, there was that initial response and, and, and good conversation around it. But then all throughout the fall, the, the, this conversation was still going when lockdowns were still happening and people were isolated and kids were being locked out of their schools. And, and there were so many other problems going on that families were facing. And there was pastors were, were obsessed, were holding on to this, this issue. And, and, and people were hurting uh, and people, people were right. suffering. Uh, well, Mr. Woodson, we're, we're running out of time here, but for, for folks that might not have been uh, familiar with Woodson Center and, and the work that you're doing, uh, how can they get connected with you? How can they, they stay in touch with all, all the amazing stuff you're doing? There are two websites. It's the woodsoncenter.org or 1776unites.com. If you go on those websites, we have uh, a rich array. You can also buy our uh, my book, I have a book, uh, two books out, and that is Lessons from the Least of These that can be obtained on Amazon and, and uh, Red, Black, and uh, Red, White, and Black. Uh, that's, a, that's our book, a collection of essays. Uh, the first seven days, it ran out of print. So many people bought it. It was the best seller on Amazon. So people are thirsty for credible information. And we'll be sure to put all that information in the show notes on the podcast. So if, uh, if you want to look in the, on the Apple podcast or Spotify or wherever you get the podcast, we'll have uh, both of uh, Mr. Woodson's books there. Well, family, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. We're so grateful for the opportunity to discuss race and roots with our guest, Mr. Bob Woodson. If you enjoyed Breaking Through the Political Spin today, don't forget to subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. We're your hosts, Aaron Bear and David Mahan, and we can't wait to see you next time here on The Narrative.